0: We have been going through the fifth the fifth commandment, through the ten commandments for some weeks now, and we are on our second sermon on the fifth commandment. We looked last Sunday at what is required in the fifth commandment. We saw that the fifth commandment is not just about parents; it is about parents, but it's about more than that. Peter updates it in First Peter to say honor everyone. Not just father and mother. So to honor father and mother is the most signal instance of that honor due to all human beings. So today we're going to talk about the negative side. What's forbidden in the fifth commandment? What are you not allowed to do in terms of honoring, dishonoring, shaming, etc.? We'll read the fifth commandment. It's verse 12. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Again, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would open our hearts to understand your word this morning. Free us from distraction. Free us from preconceived ideas about authority and submission help us to listen carefully to attend to your word to obey your word we pray especially father against the pernicious influence of ideologies that say authority is illegitimate in principle we ask that you would help us to throw off these ways of thinking these false ways of thinking and to think rather in terms of your word and your command to us to honor all men, to fear God, honor the King, to honor Father and Mother. Give me the boldness and authority to speak clearly, with demonstration of the Spirit and with power, so that your people can hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our risen Lord. Amen. When we think about what's forbidden in in the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, it really comes down to two things. The first one is the obvious, dishonoring people. Don't dishonor people. The second one is less obvious. The second one is the sin of repudiating authority. Father and mother have the right to tell you what to do. We saw this last time across... Uh, A number of institutions that we all participate in at one time or another, the household or the family, as well as school, work, church, and state, family, school, church, work, state. All of us participate in these institutions with superiors or people who are our bosses or our authorities in the various spheres and inferiors, people whom we lead, whom we boss or control in a certain respect in these spheres. The fifth commandment forbids us from dishonoring anyone up the chain, down the chain, at the same place on the chain. We get that. Our (laughs) culture loves that. Our culture is all about not dishonoring people. But the other part of it, the repudiation of legitimate authority, is a part that we have a harder time understanding and dealing with. So we'll talk about those in order. Dishonoring others and then repudiating authority. First of all comes the dishonoring others part. This is straightforward. What does it mean to dishonor? It means not affording proper weight, writing somebody off, belittling them, treating them lightly, lacking in respect, looking down on, scorning, considering yourself superior. This is to dishonor other people. And we can specifically think of the opposite of honor as not just dishonor, but as shame. Do not shame other people, says the fifth commandment. Don't call somebody forward and then invite everyone else. Go ahead and jeer at this loser. He needs to be shamed. The fifth commandment says that's not appropriate. Don't shame people. Now, We'll talk quickly. There are three verses in the Bible that do say you will shame people. The first one is Titus 2, where, where Paul says, Exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is and an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Paul says it's okay to shame opponents, to shame the people who would stand against Titus' gospel ministry. The goal is not to shame them. Shaming them is a byproduct of Titus doing his duty, which is why Paul spends the whole time saying, do what you should. Be a pattern of good works. Show integrity. Be reverent. Be incorruptible. Speak in a sound way that no one can condemn. And then shame of your opponents will be a byproduct of that. In other words, as with the Sixth Commandment, which we'll look at next week, it's okay to accept shame as a byproduct of legitimate actions, just as it's okay to accept death as a byproduct of legitimate actions. What's not okay is to will the shame, to choose the shame as a goal. What's not okay is to will death or choose death as a goal so don't say I'm going to go in there and by the time I'm finished running him through the coals he'll be ashamed of himself that's a violation of the fifth commandment that's a failure to honor all people now as we talked about last week yes sometimes you honor people by disciplining Controlling, even punishing them. You can honor a tenant while saying, you're evicted. You can honor a crook while saying, you're under arrest. You can honor a politician while saying, I'm voting for your opponent. How do you do that? Well, it's in the attitude. Is your attitude, I'm better than you, scum? Or is your attitude, there before the grace of God, go I. Some people are very terrible people. The Bible doesn't say honor all people except felons. It just says honor all people. That doesn't mean give everyone a pass. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. That's a practical repudiation of authority. That's not appropriate for the Christian. But shame is legitimate only as a byproduct of you doing the right thing. Paul also mentions shame in Second Thessalonians. If anyone does not obey our instructions in this letter, take special note of that man and do not associate with him so that he may be put to shame. Well, that's a purpose clause, right? Do it so that the guy will be ashamed. Paul seems to be saying you can intend to shame someone, but only, again, by doing what's lawful yourself. That is, by saying, I'm sorry, I can't have dinner with you. No, I won't sit at the table with you. No, I won't go to your house. No, I won't participate in that fun event. I won't go to the rodeo with you because you don't listen to the apostle. You claim to be a Christian, and yet you blow off the instructions in Second Thessalonians, and therefore I'm sorry, I can't associate with you. Right? That's shameful. To have someone tell you, I won't talk to you, and just turn around and walk away. You feel dishonored. How is that compatible with honoring everyone? Well, the bottom line is you honor God most. You honor God first. When you have God's instructions in Second Thessalonians or in any book of scripture. Sometimes those require you to say, I'm sorry, but I can't affiliate with you. I can't participate with you in that. I think probably the best way to think about this um, in one of my weaknesses is gossip. And in college, one of my closest friends, who's now a pastor in Pennsylvania, was very strong against gossip. He was very good at deflecting this sin so i'd be sitting at the dinner table with him and i'd open with hey did you hear about our mutual friend so-and-so and and how he's been and zach would say caleb i don't want to hear it let's talk about something else right zach shamed me by saying that his goal was not let's make caleb feel like an anthill like a pile of dirt but Nonetheless, the outcome was that, and it happened on a regular basis because I didn't learn very fast. That is what shame is dishonor, right? He's not trying to dishonor me. He's not saying, you're scum, but he's saying, we have to follow God here. And if you don't want to do that, you're going to feel some shame in the presence of the people who do do that. That's what Paul is talking about in Second Thessalonians 3. He's not contradicting the fifth commandment and saying it's okay to dishonor people. Right? And that go, even goes for parents whom you are commanded to honor above all else in these earthly terms. If your parents want to do something evil, it's okay to say, no, mom and dad, I really don't want to go to the mountain cabin and spend four days drinking with you. I'm sorry. I don't think you should do it and I will not participate with you in doing it. And if they feel ashamed and lash out at you and tell you you're a terrible daughter because you said that, say to yourself, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, don't associate with him that he may be put to shame. They're trying to shame you for doing the right thing. You have to respond and say, no, I'm actually honoring you by refusing to participate in your foolishness. I won't do that because I actually believe in the fifth commandment, mom and dad. Sorry. Finally, 1 Peter 3. If you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Don't fear their intimidation. Don't be troubled. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and respect. Keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Peter says, somebody's going to say, you're a terrible person. You won't come drink with me in the cabin for four days. And you say gently and respectfully, no, I don't abuse alcohol. If that shames you, I'm sorry, but... That's not my fault. That's what Peter is saying. You don't shame them by shouting shame on you. But you shame them by treating them decently, respectfully, gently. He says that. Answering your questions about their hope. Or their questions about your hope. And that will shame them. It's a byproduct of your legitimate, God-fearing, God-serving actions. In other words, right, people of God, shame is not a tool that we have in our toolbox, this shame ball that we can throw at the world whenever we see them doing something evil. Oh, shame on Disney. Shame on CNN. It's not what it's about. God never encourages us to make shame our goal. He says, if you see somebody doing something wrong, you do what's right. And that, a byproduct of you doing what's right, is that they will be put to shame. But in no case, in these three passages about shame, does the Apostle say, make sure they feel shameful. Not your job. It's a violation of the fifth commandment to try to shame somebody else. So, these are cases, yes, you're causing shame, but it's accidental. It's a byproduct. It's not deliberate. So, that's the first point. Don't dishonor others. Don't put others to shame. Don't try to dishonor. Don't try to shame. That is off limits for the Christian. But the second part of this commandment forbids the repudiation of authority. To honor father and mother requires submitting to their authority. In fact, as we saw, this requires submitting in the sphere in which the authority has jurisdiction to any lawful instruction. If your boss says, eat Mexican three nights a week, you say, I'm sorry, you don't have jurisdiction over my food. But if your boss says, I need the project turned in by Friday night, you say, yes, boss. Boss has jurisdiction over when the project is due. And therefore, you have to obey the boss in that area. We violate the fifth commandment whenever we repudiate authority. Now, there's two ways to do this. Theoretically, And practically. Practically is the one that instantly comes to mind. The child saying, no, I won't eat the peas. Or the student saying, no, I won't take the test. But the theoretical repudiation of authority is actually far more dangerous. And, I would add, far more prevalent. In our culture today, there are four theories in particular that I want to address briefly, that all theoretically repudiate authority, that all stand against authority in principle and say this authority is illegitimate. The first of these is the political ideology of libertarianism. So yes, my knife is out. I'm here to slaughter sacred cows. Buckle in. The fifth commandment forbids all Christians from believing or identifying with ideologies that explicitly or implicitly deny crucial aspects of human authority. If you define libertarianism, I'm going to give very short definitions of all of these four so we can be on the same page. If you define libertarianism as the statement that government is best, which governs least, libertarianism is off limits for the Christian. The idea that that government is best which governs least logically issues in the statement that anarchy, or the absence of the state entirely, is the best form of government. Completely absurd statement. In other words, that no government at all is the best kind of government. That's foolish. God gave kings the power of the sword, as the Bible asserts over and over. So to deny that the state is legitimate in principle, that there could be no such thing as legitimate exercise of state power, or in our context, what libertarianism more commonly denies, libertarianism says that the state has no role in promoting any positive common good. The state is only about the negative good of being left alone. government is best which governs least, and the only job of the state is to enforce contracts and to enforce property rights, maybe to punish murderers. That is (laughs) wrong in many ways. It's a cure for totalitarianism that's worse than the disease because it completely overlooks the harm done by a society with no respect for authority and no, no moral purpose to the authority. So, insofar as libertarianism is an ideology that says political authority is illegitimate as such, as political authority something the Christian must reject. The same goes for egalitarianism, the prevailing moral philosophy of our day, which essentially says that equality is the ultimate moral value. What's most important is not, as Christians have historically said, Love, the greatest of these is love. Love is the ultimate moral value. Egalitarianism says, no, love is not the ultimate moral value. Equality is the ultimate moral value. What's most important is that everyone be equal. So in the discourse of today, if you hear the word inequality in a secular source, they're probably talking about financial inequality. People in the top income quintile versus people in the bottom income quintile, and our crusade for equality says we should try to bring those two as close together as possible. We can measure this with the Gini coefficient and say this is an unequal place, this is an equal place, and so on. Well, egalitarianism, I'm not here to talk about financial inequality, but rather about the other meaning of egalitarianism, which is the idea simply that human beings in general are all completely equal. That not just as Thomas Jefferson says in the Declaration, that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, but more than that, that people should have equality of outcome and that any disparity in outcome is evidence of pernicious and evil inequality. This applies then across the board in the five institutions that I mentioned. That in the family, the parents and the children are equal, not just in standing before God or standing before the law, but also equal in authority. That the children have as much right to say how the household should run as the parents do. That in the workplace, the employees have as much right to say how things will go as the bosses do. That in the state, the people have as much right to say how things will go as the legislators, judges, and executives do. Or the statement that in the, the school, the students have as much right to decide what's in the curriculum and what tests they will and won't take as the teachers do. Right. So this ideology of egalitarianism that says equality is the ultimate moral value issues in things like defund the police the felon and the cop are equal and therefore the cop has no right to grab the felon and put handcuffs on him that is unequal cop is in charge the felon is not in charge and therefore we're opposed to that because equality is our primary moral value. Historically, you can trace this to the French Revolution and its slogan, liberty, equality, fraternity. And equality is one of those three, and the master principle. The aristocrats are equal to the third estate. We are all equals, and therefore we will overthrow the aristocrats and destroy the Bastille. Egalitarian ideology is directly contrary to the fifth commandment. It attacks the very idea of legitimate authority by saying, No, you're not the boss of me. I'm as good as you. I am just as much in charge as you are. Doesn't matter that you're the teacher and I'm the student. Doesn't matter that you're the father and I'm the son. Doesn't matter that you're the president and I'm the voter. Doesn't matter. That you're the cop and I'm the felon doesn't matter. We come now to maybe the scariest one of all feminism. If we define feminism, you're familiar with these definitions. First one that I would use is women's empowerment. Feminism as the idea of empowering women. You've all heard that. You've also heard it described as women's liberation or liberating women. Now, what do these definitions mean? If feminism is about women's empowerment, that presupposes a narrative in which women are weak and are oppressed by a more powerful patriarchy. The solution to this problem of weak women oppressed by the powerful patriarchy is to empower women, to give them more power so that they can be equal to the patriarchy or perhaps even more powerful than the patriarchy and thereby crush their ancient enemy, the patriarchy, and achieve women's liberation. Now, how does this narrative, this paradigm, relate to the fifth commandment? The answer is that feminism is paradigmatically wrong. Again, biblically speaking, as Christians, our ultimate value is not equality, nor is it power. It is love. And therefore, our default solution to any problem will be some variant on love is the answer. Feminism comes along and says, no, love is not the answer. Power is the answer. We read this problem of women's position in society strictly in terms of power versus weakness or, in the women's liberation definition, as freedom versus servitude. Feminism is wrong, is contrary to the fifth commandment, because it's applied the wrong categories for understanding women's position in society. The position of women cannot be boiled down to Power or freedom. We can't say the problem here is that women are weak. If women were given more power, the problem would disappear. That's not the problem. And the way to see this easily is simply to fast forward through the course of human life. If a baby is mistreated, if children are abused, especially very young children, the answer is not give those kids more power. The six-month-old is crying for, for food, but his parents are on meth, and they don't care. So, if we give the baby power so that he can stop the drug dealers, then the baby can get food. No. Right, the answer in that scenario is not power, but love. Parents need to love the child. And if the parents won't, somebody else needs to love the child. And the same goes if you fast forward into old age. This nonagenarian, this 95 year old woman, is very weak and unable to care for herself. So what she needs is power, right? Make her the boss of the nursing home, and then she'll be well taken care of. It's completely wrong headed. Feminism and any ideology that posits that human relationships are primarily about power relationships completely ignores any period of human life outside those prime age years that demographers call 18 to 64. If you're beyond those years, right? then power is perhaps no longer a category that applies to you. This is why we are opposed to feminism, not because everything feminism suggests is wrong, but because its baseline framing of the problem, the paradigm with which it approaches the question, is a question of power versus weakness or freedom versus servitude. The Christian comes and says, no, human relationships are not fundamentally about power versus weakness, not fundamentally about Freedom versus servitude, right? There's no commandment in these 10 that says, you shall be free. There is no commandment that says, you shall be powerful. Those are actually not moral categories. The commandments say, you shall be honoring. You shall honor your father and mother. And therefore, the paradigm with which we approach human relationships is one of love versus hate or honor versus shame. What's the solution if women really are weak and oppressed by the patriarchy? The answer is love, which the Bible already said long ago. Husbands, love your wives. Don't be mean, angry, powerful patriarchs who use your power for evil. Rather, by love, Serve one another. And the same goes for the freedom thing. If you are enslaved, what is the answer? Make the slave more powerful so that he can gun down his master and escape? No, that doesn't solve the problem of slavery. At best, all that can do is flip who's the slave and who's the master. Which any power paradigm can only do. If you take the slave and empower him to the point where he's more powerful than the master, then the slave can enslave the former master. But nothing has changed in terms of the overall structure. As the 20th century communist revolutions and the French Revolution showed all too clearly, the power paradigm is not the answer and does not solve the problem of oppression. The fifth commandment, requires that we refuse to ideologically doubt the existence and legitimacy of authority. Power is not the problem, nor is power the solution. Hate is the problem. Love, the solution. And that goes emphatically for this final one, which I've just labeled wokeism, but essentially the idea that all authority is illegitimate authority. Or that power is, by definition, oppressive. And that the powerful group in any situation, wherever you find it in the world, is guilty. And the less powerful group is innocent and, in fact, even borderline sacred. This is what I call wokeism. It tells us that the moral thing to do is always to counter and challenge power thereby defeating oppression by removing the oppressor's power to oppress. All of life, it says, in every sphere is divided between the powerful and the powerless. And the powerful are illegitimate in principle. They are always evil, abusive, and wicked in their power. What's wrong with this? Well, it's wrong because ultimately, right, it denies that God's power is legitimate. The powerful are always wrong. The oppressed are always right. If that's true, then power as such is illegitimate. Of course, there's hypocrisy here. Wokeism too believes that some power is liberating and generally locates that power in the state. Trans people are being oppressed. What do we do? We turn to the power of the state to free them from that oppression. We pass an anti-discrimination law we erect an anti-discrimination bureaucracy which will exercise power not on behalf of the evil oppressors but on behalf of the virtuous oppressed. Folks, that's hypocrisy. But more than that, we locate the legitimacy of power in the power of God. That's the one who made all things and rules all things and who has set up this world in such a way that in every sphere there are those legitimately leading and those required morally to follow, to submit. Just as the Bible teaches that there is such a thing as righteous violence, so it teaches that there is such a thing as righteous power. Exhibit A is Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the ruler of the kings of the earth, He is not oppressive, but he is powerful, because in him, perfect power is joined with perfect love. So practically, how do we repudiate authority? Theoretically, you can do it by embracing libertarianism, egalitarianism, feminism, wokeism. No Christian should believe in those philosophies. But practically, you can repudiate authority by... Not saying, oh, this is illegitimate in principle, but just in practice, blowing off authority. Not taking it seriously. And you can do this as a superior, as an inferior, or as an equal. If you're a superior, you can practically deny authority by being a husband who doesn't lead. And a husband whose chorus is whatever you want, honey. Whatever the wife thinks, right? that is illegitimate. That is practical denial of your authority as the husband. Or the same with a parent who won't parent. Kid, what should we do? Where should we go to dinner? When should you go to bed? What movies should you be allowed to watch? What friends should you be allowed to have? What books should you be required to read? What education should you receive? Parent doesn't know kid gets to direct all of it that's a practical denial of god's grant of authority to the parent the same with a being a boss who doesn't lead a boss who refuses to empower your team a boss who refuses to say here's the goal team get us to the goal a boss who consistently sows chaos or confusion or doubt in the minds of the employees such that they aren't really sure what the goal is, or that they're pretty sure that if they take any steps to achieve the goal, the boss will come down on them like a ton of bricks. That is a practical denial of authority. Same for teachers. If you're a teacher and it's just stories, rabbit trails, uh, funny events on the way to class all the time, or even devotionals all the time instead of getting to the material... You're wrong. You're practically denying the authority that God gave you as a teacher. Or, uh, (laughs) the favorite of some of you in here, being a law suggestion officer, not a law enforcement officer. I'm a cop, but I don't arrest anybody. I'm a prosecutor, but I don't enforce the law and go before the judge and argue why this felon actually committed something felonious or a legislator, or any really officer of the state, really, who ignores or blows off the law. All of these are ways of being a superior who refuses to exercise God-given authority. It's a crime. It's a sin against the fifth commandment. And you're being that father and mother, and you're being dishonorable. You're practically begging your kids, or those under your authority, to scorn you and look down on you, because though you have the position, you don't have what it takes to exercise the position well. But, inferiors too. As inferiors, we can break this commandment. Again, by being a wife who doesn't submit, the husband says, no, we're going to do it this way. And the wife says, no, we're not. I'm going to do what I please. Get over it, dude. Or, the child who doesn't obey. No, I won't eat my peas. No, I won't go to bed. No, I won't go to school. No, I won't wear my seatbelt. Or whatever the case may be. Being the employee who doesn't cooperate. Wally and Dilbert. I always have an excuse. I always have something to do that is in conflict with what the boss told me to do. I always have another article to read online rather than getting to work. Or the student who won't learn. Teacher assigned this novel. I'm not going to read this novel. I hate Henry James. Throw the book out the window. Or being the citizen who won't submit to the law. Yes, the IRS says I owe income tax. I'm not going to pay. If they audit me, it'll be years from now and I'll probably be dead. So who cares? Or the state says, write a big one, don't set off fireworks and city limits. Who cares? I'm better than that. Or an equal. How do we sin as equals against authority practically? Well, number one, we encourage others to repudiate authority. You find your equals and say, Teacher's an idiot. Don't do the homework. Or you'll be an idiot too. Or you're a kid finding your fellow children and telling them, Let's ignore mom and dad. Mom and dad are gone. They said not to watch that video. Let's watch it. Or... The other thing that we can do is encourage others to live in shame. And this is where I want to close. So often we do that by misguided expositions of these very Ten Commandments. If you're sitting here thinking, I'm a woke feminist libertarian who's worried about equality, I feel ashamed to have just heard this sermon. Then I haven't done a good job of explaining what this commandment is about. This commandment is not here to dishonor you. God is not violating these commandments by proclaiming them. In other words, the commandment is here to honor you as God addresses you as His rational creature with the ability to hear, the ability to obey, the ability to love, the ability to honor. God doesn't have that soft bigotry of low expectations. He has high expectations and that's why He gave us these Ten Commandments. Because he's saying to you that as created and as redeemed, both in terms of the original design and in terms of your new life in Jesus, you have the power to keep these commandments. So don't feel dishonored or ashamed by them. If you listen to this and say, wow, well, I have practically and theoretically repudiated authority. I have shamed people. Ouch. Ouch. The commandment is not condemnation, it's inspiration. It is a word from God to you as His child saying, this is what I'm like. This is what I want you to be like. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. And what does the Son do with that? Does He throw down the Father and say, now I'm the great God? Other religions say that. Pagans say that. Kronos begets Zeus, Zeus kills Kronos. Greek mythology. Or, God the Father begets Jesus, who in turn someday will bump off God the Father and become the new Father. Mormonism. We don't believe that. Rather, the Father loves the Son and has given everything into His hand. And John goes on to say in a different place that all men should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Jesus, who has everything his father has, still honors his father. And that is the good news for us. Jesus honored his father perfectly. And one of the ways he honors his father is by carrying out this idea that he and the father had together to save the world. A world full of sinners who dishonor father and mother. A world full of egalitarians, libertarians, woke Feminists, those are the people that Jesus came to save. The people who theoretically and practically repudiate honoring father and mother. Jesus honored his father by coming to die for them. This commandment is not here to shame you. It's here to honor you by telling you how someone delivered from slavery to Pharaoh, slavery to sin, should live. It doesn't dishonor you by saying your lifestyle is wrong or your thoughts are wrong, if they are. It honors you by saying that because it's calling you to a more upright, a more righteous, a more God-fearing, a more honorable way of life and way of thinking. God who says, honor all men, is the God who honored you by sending His Son to die for you. So don't hear about your guilt and react with shame and hostility. That's not the point. This commandment is not here to shame you. It's here to honor you. When you confess your guilt, turn to the Lord, who frees you from the burden of egalitarianism and trying to be just as good as everybody else in every other way, gives you rest beneath His sheltering authority. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to see your authority as a tremendous blessing. To crown with many crowns the Lamb upon his throne. To rejoice that Jesus is Lord. And that he is our Lord and that he has the right to tell us what to do. And that what he tells us to do is to honor Father and Mother. That our days may be long in the heaven, the land beyond this world that he is in the process of giving us. Father, help us to conceptualize life rightly, to think in terms of our ultimate moral value of love. And because we love one another, help us to honor one another. Free us from the sins of scorn and contempt and shaming each other. Free us from the sins of ideologically and denying authority and help us to submit to your authority because you honored us in the ultimate way by sending your Son to die for us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our risen Lord. Amen.